Take your Bibles and please turn to Ephesians chapter 1, verse 5. Having predestinated us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will. The Greek word for predestinated is perizo. Strong's defined it as to predetermine, foreordain. Its usage is, I foreordain, predetermine, mark out beforehand. What this teaches us is that those called in Jesus Christ were foreordained and predetermined by God to be adopted as his sons. That those called in the Son of God and foreknown to become part of his glorious body would share in the same holiness, righteousness, and purity as their Savior. This is a very important element in the mystery of Christ, revealing those who will be saved through the Son of God were priorly chosen by God. It is predestined will and purpose that ultimately saves man, and not, as most believe, some innate good quality in man. The concept of predestination is clearly revealed throughout God's Word and vividly seen in the Old and New Testaments. God's selection of Abraham, Moses, Jeremiah, Israel, David, and the New Testament examples of Paul and Christ 12 prove that election precedes both salvation and ordination. What is true throughout Scripture and biblical history is equally true of those called to heaven today. Just as Israel was predestined and purposed by God to be God's holy people on earth, so have those chosen in Christ been elected to share with God's Son in heaven. It is the potter's right to do with the clay what he pleases. And what God has pleased is that through the Son of God will be created a people both purposed for and worthy to share in the hope of heaven. The Geneva Study Bible on Ephesians 1.5, another plainer exposition of the efficient cause and also of the eternal election by which God is said to have chosen us in Christ. That is, because it pleased him to appoint us when we were not yet born, whom he would make to be his children by Jesus Christ. So that there is no reason for our election to be looked for here, except in the free mercy of God. And neither is faith, which God foresaw the cause of our predestination, but the effect, end quote. We cannot know why God predestined those called in Christ to be part of his heavenly body, only that he did. We cannot know why such an abundance of mercy has been shed upon us, only that it has. Ultimately, God's actions should be meditated upon and not his reasons. Since there is no human reason capable to fully understand the mind of God and his wish to purpose for heaven a people created for himself. If men believe themselves to be either equal or even superior to the Lord, they will question the concept of predestination, that God has no right to pursue and accomplish his own will, though sinners do the same regularly. Yet how hypocritical is it when it is thought and reasoned among the lost that whatever they choose to do is pronounced by them a righteous and noble thing, but if God exercises his own divine choice, then there is an immediate cry of heavenly injustice. Hence, according to human thought, man can will to live as they desire, 
and function according to their own human will. Yet it is considered indictable if God does the same, teaching us that sinners both believe and insist that they have full right and authority to do as they desire, but refuse to allow or tolerate a being so much greater and holier than them this same right. Astoundingly, it is sinfully reasoned that men can sin as they want, but God cannot save as he wants. The Geneva Study Bible on Ephesians 1.5 God respects nothing, either anything that is present or anything that is to come, but himself only. And now, according to the good pleasure of his will, there is nothing in regards to the cause and reason for the believer's salvation other than the good pleasure of his, God's will. Those who will enter the kingdom of God will do so simply because they have been first chosen and called by God to enter it. Just as salvation is itself a gift, so is entrance into Christ's coming kingdom a result of heavenly generosity. And in Luke chapter 12, verse 32, we read, Fear not, little flock, and this is Jesus speaking, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. It is not because of who we are or what God has even raised us to be which provides for our salvation. This eternal blessing can be traced solely to the good pleasure of divine will. Though this is not a complicated truth, it is a profound one. That saints shall share with Christ in heaven because it is God's good pleasure that they should. All salvation therefore has its origination in the goodness of God and his prior will to adopt as sons those purposed for heaven. In the NLT translation of Ephesians 1.5, God decided in advance to adopt us into his own family by bringing us to himself through Jesus Christ. This is what he wanted to do, and it gave him great pleasure. In respect to God's chosen, Jesus said he would not lose even one. And in John chapter 6, verse 38, we read, For I came down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him that sent me. And this is the Father's will which hath sent me, that of all which he hath given me, I should lose nothing, but should raise it up again at the last day. So thorough is Christ's gathering and preservation of those selected by God for inheritance in heaven, that Jesus himself revealed none will be lost nor fail to reach their purpose, celestial destiny. It is thus the goodness of divine will that saves men and the power of God's Son that secures divine will being accomplished. The Jameson Fawcett Brown Bible on Ephesians 1.5 We cannot go beyond the good pleasure of His will in searching into the causes of our salvation or any of His works. And in John chapter 15, verse 16, we read, You have not chosen me, again Christ, but I have chosen you and ordain you that you should go forth and bring forth fruit and that your fruit should remain, that whatsoever you shall ask of the Father in my name, he may give it to you. Jesus' words are emphatic when he stated to his disciples, you have not chosen me, but I have chosen you. A man might feel a call to ministry, but this is only experienced after God has preordained him for it. Hence, both the call to heavenly sonship 
and ordination is only extended after men have first been selected for each. Therefore, when repentant sinners feel the inward need and internal longing to believe all things for the pursuit of God, it is because they have been first chosen by God. It is therefore only after men have been preordained to enter the kingdom that they will experience an inward compulsion and spiritual desire to move towards it. Just as with any summons or invitation, to respond to the invitation requires that it is first sent. Hence, no man could properly respond to the call of Christ unless first there is heard a call to believe upon him. No one would answer a door unless there was first heard a knock on it. No one would pick up a phone unless it rang. Thus, when men are drawn to the Son of God, this reveals that they have first heard God's call and are now responding to it. Verse 6 now. To the praise of the glory of His grace, wherein He hath made us accepted in the Beloved. Barnes on this verse, the meaning is that the doctrine of predestination and election lays the foundation of adoring gratitude and praise, end quote. It takes great and continued humility to realize that Jesus chose us and we did not choose him. That is God who has made us accepted in the beloved and not anything we have done ourselves. Predestination also lays the foundation for adoration, praise, and worship of God simply because man's complete salvation is God's own workmanship. In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, For we are his, God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. Ellicott's commentary on this, we are his workmanship. This verse, on the contrary, is unique and remarkable, characteristic of the idea with which this epistle starts. The election and predestination of God, making us what we are and applying it very strikingly not only to the first regeneration, but even to the good works which follow it. The word rendering workmanship is only used elsewhere in Romans 1.20, where it is applied to the works of God in creation. Probably here also it does not exclude our first creation. We are His, holy and absolutely." End quote. It is God's perfect offering of the Son of God that has perfected forever those purpose to share with Him in heaven. In Hebrews chapter 10, verse 14, For by one offering he, Jesus Christ, hath perfected forever them that are sanctified. When Jesus said, It is finished, this meant his journey to redeem fallen man was completed. And in John chapter 19, verse 30, When Jesus therefore had received the vinegar, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up the ghost. Ellicott's commentary, It is finished the work which God had given him to do. This word is the expression by Jesus himself of what St. John had expressed by saying, Jesus knowing that all things were now finished, that the scriptures should be fulfilled, end quote. If any question whether Jesus Christ can save man, then they really question if Christ's ministry to die for sin was sufficient for salvation. Because only if Christ's work to save sinners was incomplete, and more needed to be done to accomplish it, could proper skepticism of his ability to save the lost be justified. 
But if this were true, then we must discard Christ's very own words when he said that the work that God sent him to do to redeem sinners from sin was finished. How could it not be since it was God's offering that was sent to save? Hence, if the Lord's own offering of sending Jesus to die for sin is insufficient for saving man, what could any man really offer in its place to save himself? Teaching us that if Christ did not save us from sin, then we have no innate ability to save ourselves. In 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 9, Who hath saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given us in Christ Jesus before the world began. It is critical for saints to believe that they have been saved through God's purpose and grace, lest the praise that should be directed towards God is intercepted and men praise themselves instead. This is what the Pharisee did in Christ's parable of the Pharisee and the publican, when he believed that God should save him because of himself. Whom a man believes makes him worthy of heaven is ultimately who will be praised for it. If it is God, it will be God. If it is himself, then praise will be directed inward and surely not upward. Ellicott's commentary on 2 Timothy 1.9. We are told in the next clause that the grace was given before the world began. Therefore, our works could have had nothing to do with the divine purpose which was resolved on by God. As Christendom observes, no one counseling with him, but of his own purpose, the purpose originating in his own goodness. Calvin pithily remarks, If God chose us before the creation of the world, he could not have considered the question of our works, which could have had no existence at a period when we ourselves were not. But according to, in pursuance of, his own purposes, with emphasis on own, that purpose which was prompted by nothing outward, but which arose solely out of the divine goodwill or goodness or love, end quote. He hath made us accepted in the beloved. Every grace, blessing, and mercy bestowed on the Christian lies in their relationship with Jesus Christ. It is through him that saints are called, chosen, and will ultimately be transformed to partake of Christ's own glorious image. There is no other acceptance to God than through his Son, no other forgiveness for sin than through whom God has purposed it should come. Barnes on Ephesians 1.6, In the Beloved, in the Lord Jesus Christ, the well-beloved Son of God, He has chosen us in Him, and it is through Him that these mercies have been conferred on us. End quote. Verse 7 now, In whom, Christ, we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace. The cost for man's redemption required death. Ezekiel 18.4 Behold, all souls are mine. As the soul of the Father, so also the soul of the Son is mine. The soul that sinneth, it shall die. Benson on Ezekiel 18.4 Behold, all souls are mine as they are all equally my creatures and in my power, so my dealings with them shall be without prejudice or partiality. The soul that sinneth, it shall die. 
the very same man that committeth sin shall be punished for it, end quote. Without death, which is the only adequate payment for sin, redemption from sin is not possible. Sin must be punished, and only death can accomplish this divine punishment. Therefore, for true remission from sin, death and the shedding of blood must precede it. Ultimately, death and sacrifice for past sin must precede the future impartation of eternal life. For none can be given everlasting life until first their sins against God have been atoned for. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 22. And almost all things are by the law purged with blood, and without shedding of blood is no remission. Barnes on this verse, and without shedding of blood is no remission. It is universally true that sin never has been and never will be forgiven except in connection with and in virtue of the shedding of blood. It is on this principle that the plan of salvation by the atonement is based, and on this that God in fact bestows pardon upon people. There is not the slightest evidence that any man has ever been pardoned except through the blood shed for the remission of sins. The infidel who rejects the atonement has no evidence that his sins are pardoned. The man who lives in the neglect of the gospel, although he has abundant evidence that he is a sinner, furnishes none that his sins are forgiven, and the Muslim and the pagan can point to no proof that their sins are blotted out. It remains to be demonstrated that one single member of the human family has ever had the slightest evidence of pardoned sin, except through the blood of expiation. In the divine arrangement, there is no principle better established than this, that all sin which is forgiven is remitted through the blood of the atonement, a principle which has never been departed from hitherto, and which never will be, end quote. It was not the sinner's blood that was shed for his redemption. It was a Savior's. What is noteworthy as well is that if men had died for their own sin, then they would have remained eternally dead. The critical difference between men dying for their own sin and Christ for their sin is this. If a sinner, or say a criminal, was sentenced to death for the crimes he had committed and then was ultimately put to death for those crimes, why would a judge and court system that found him worthy of death reverse its punishment? It would not. If it did, this would imply error in the original sentence. Thus, if men were to die for their own sin, they could never be righteously brought back to life and forgiven, since death for sin could never be reversed once dead. To do so would negate sin's punishment. What is different about Jesus dying for sin is that his own deity prevented death's ultimate hold on him. The death that would have held sinners eternally captive was overcome by one whom God gave the power over death. Hence, what would have eternally destroyed sinners could not he who was himself eternal. Where death would have sealed the sinner's fate, it did not his Savior. By then, Jesus dying for sin, the punishment for sin is met. But Christ's resurrection from the dead proved that death could not hold God's Son. Acts chapter 2, verse 24. Whom God hath raised up, having loosed the pains of death, 
because it was not possible that he should be holden of it. Gil on this, because it was not possible that he should be holden of it, of death and under the power of it, partly because of the power and dignity of his person as the Son of God, he being still the Prince of Life, and who by dying abolished death, and him that had power of it, and partly because as the surety of his people, he had made full satisfaction for sin, and had brought in an everlasting righteousness, and therefore ought in justice to be discharged, and detained a prisoner no longer, as also because of the prophecies of the Old Testament concerning his resurrection." End quote. Because it was the Savior who died for sin and not the sinner, the death that would have held the sinner and eternally prohibit his escape from the grave had no similar power to do the same to the Son of God. Therefore, just as Jesus retained the power to lay down his life for sin, he also held the power to rise from its punishment. That Jesus could die for sin and rise to life again is something those bound by both sin and death could never do. For their own death for sin would have prohibited any hope of future life. Yet this was not true for the one God sent to die for men's sins. His deity prevented his eternal corruption. And in John chapter 10, verse 17, Therefore doth my Father love me, because I lay down my life, that I might take it again. No man taketh it from me, but I lay it down of myself. I have power to lay it down, and I have power to take it again. This commandment have I received of my Father. Barnes on this, power to take it again. This shows that he was divine. A dead man has no power to raise himself from the grave. And as Jesus had this power after he was deceased, it proves that there was some other nature than that which had expired to which the term I might still be applied. None but God can raise the dead. And as Jesus had this power over his own body, it proves that he was divine, end quote. That Jesus would rise from the dead was not new revelation previously unheard of. This spiritual truth had been revealed to his disciples multiple times. And though it seemed to Christ's disciples that he would not actually arise from the grave, time proved he would. Miraculously, Jesus fulfilled his own prophecy about himself. Yet sinners are often slow to believe that which revelation reveals as abundantly clear. And in Luke 24, 11, And their words in regards to Christ's resurrection seemed to them as idle tales, and they believed them not. Verse 8 now of Ephesians 1, Wherein he hath abounded toward us in all wisdom and prudence. Barnes on this verse, wherein he hath abounded, which he, God, has liberally manifested to us. This grace has not been stinted and confined, but has been liberal and abundant. In all wisdom, that is, he has evinced great wisdom in the plan of salvation, wisdom in so saving people as to secure the honor of his own law, and in devising a scheme that was eminently adapted to save people. And prudence. The word used here, phronesis, means understanding, thinking, prudence. The meaning here is that, so to speak, God has evinced great intelligence in the plan of salvation. There was ample proof of mind and of thought. It was adapted to the end in view. 
It was far seen, skillfully arranged, and carefully formed. The sense of the whole is that there was a wise design running through the whole plan and abounding in it an eminent degree, end quote. Practically, man's mind is not capable to know by itself the eternal counsels of God. Hence, if either God or his will is to be known, then it must require revelation from the Lord to learn anything of those hidden things purposed by him. Yet without the Spirit of God, this wisdom cannot be grasped by mere human ability, 1 Corinthians 2.14, but the natural man, or the man absent the Spirit of God, receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness unto him. Neither can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned. Ellicott on this, natural, that is, literally, that part of our nature which we call the mind, and hence signifies that man in whom pure intellectual reason and the merely natural affections predominate. Now such a one cannot grasp spiritual truth any more than a physical nature, which is made to discern physical things, can grasp intellectual things. Spiritual truth appeals to the spirit of the man, and therefore is intelligible only to those who are spiritual, in whom the pneuma is not dormant, but quickened by the holy pneuma. The spiritual realm to an unsaved man is foolishness, simply because he possesses no adequate power or ability to perceive it. For him, God does not exist, and the false reasoning is that he cannot be seen through mere physical means. Thus, according to the unsaved, there is no God based solely on the presumption that if there were, he could be seen through natural sight. Unknown, though, to those absent the Spirit, is that only through its influence on the heart can spiritual truth be made known and God be properly perceived. Because God is spirit, it will require his spiritual nature sent to man to enable true sight of himself. 1 Corinthians 2, verse 9 now. But as it is written, I have not seen, nor ear heard, neither have entered into the heart of man the things which God hath prepared for them that love him. But God hath revealed them unto us by his Spirit. For the Spirit searcheth all things, yea, the deep things of God. Verse 9 now of Ephesians 1. Having made known unto us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure, which he hath purposed in himself, that in the dispensation of the fullness of times, he, God, might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth, even in him. Barnes on this, he might gather together in one. The word used here, anakephalio, means literally to sum up, to recapitulate, as an order does at the close of his discourse. It is from kephale, the head, the sum, the chief thing, the main point. In the New Testament, the word means to comprehend several things under one. Romans 13.9, it is briefly comprehended. Summed up under one precept, love. In the passage before us, it means that God would sum up or comprehend all things in heaven and earth through the Christian dispensation. He would make one empire under one head with common feelings and under the same laws. The reference is to the unity which will hereafter exist in the kingdom of God. When all his friends on earth and in heaven 
shall be united, and all shall have a common head. Now there is alienation. The earth has been separated from other worlds by rebellion. It has gone off into apostasy and sin. It refuses to acknowledge the great head to which other worlds are subject. And the object is to restore it to its proper place, so that there shall be one great and united kingdom. End quote. The mystery of God's will, which he hath purposed in himself, and is now revealed, is that God, in the fullness of times, shall gather all things to be subject to his one appointed head, Jesus Christ. Ultimately, in the very one through whom the believer is saved, will be culminated God's plan for the entire world. It is for this reason that those saved through Jesus Christ should never doubt the security of their salvation, simply because he who has previously died to save them has been purposed by God to rule the entire race of man. The Savior of the Christian, therefore, will soon be revealed to all mankind as the appointed Lord of all things, both in heaven and earth.